話を聞こうどんな事件だもちろんロードエルメロイ2世にふさわしい何事件だと思う Welcome back to another episode of the Magic Circuit. This is a bi weekly podcast where we talk about Kanoko Nasu's Type Moon universe, which mostly means fate, grand order, and all things fate. I'm Mia. And I'm Ben. Fuck yeah. Let's go. <laughs> we're in it. We're in it. Yeah. So today we're going to hit the ground running with some, some lore. Yeah. This time we are not talking about fate, grand order, but we are talking about all things fate. I feel like this is the first really heavy lore episode we've done in a while. So I'm, I'm actually pretty excited about this. Me too. So this episode kind of, I think you were the one who mentioned it to me, but it, it came not long after our dear friend and occasional guest on the show had mentioned to me that he was showing some of his friends case files. They were really into it, despite not having seen a ton of other Fate stuff, but they were like, hey, when are they going to explain who Grey is? Mm-hmm. And Yuri was like, they're going to explain who Grey is, right? And I was like, they don't really explain who Grey is. They don't really explain anything about Grey other than that. She's a saber face, and she has a strong connection with the dead. Right. Do they even explain that she's a saber face in this show? I don't think they mention her connection to saber at all. They don't. I don't think they ever explicitly say it, but when Karabo sees her, there's a shot of Artoria. Oh, that's right. With the yes. uh, Mystic Eyes of Past Vision. And then yes, yes, when yes, she's in correct. the cave with Hephaestion, the reflection in the pool is Artoria. Ah, uh, you're right. And Waver does say a couple times, like, cover your face, and she says something like, thank you for hating this face of mine, or, or whatever, yeah. whatever gray stuff that comes out of her mouth. Right. But they never actually explicitly explain what Gray's deal is. And I was thinking, huh, this is kind of weird, considering that Gray is kind of like the, the poster cute girl of the show, and that she's such a big deal in the series. So, and then you mentioned that it would probably be a good idea to have an episode where we just explain a lot of the lore stuff that's in case files, even though I think they do do a pretty pretty good job of explaining some of it. Yeah, I think so. They don't hit all of it, and that's where we come in. I definitely know that um, there are some people in the uh, other, the Discord for the other podcast I'm on, the Art Anime Podcast, who watched the show and couldn't really follow a lot of the arcane elements of the series really okay so, yeah <laughs> we're just um, so deep in i guess i was like oh this is really good and informative our, our standards for what makes sense are vastly warped compared to <laughs> the average viewer i think that's probably true and i i would reckon a guess that the average listener to our podcast is also well above average but just in case, I think that we are just going to use this episode to run through a bunch of the lore stuff that is prominent in Case Files. Right. Say where it came from, what it all means, what the significance of things is. And for those of you who aren't quite up to our level of informedness slash absurdity, then this could be a good primer for you to follow along a little bit better. Mm-hmm. 
And I'll definitely be sharing this episode with some of my friends who are like, hey, what the fuck is going on in Case Files, even though it's really <laughs> right. cool. Right. So yeah, this will be hopefully a good primer. Try and keep it succinct and not go on our usual tangents. Uh, right. We have a very focused schedule for this episode. So yes. starting off with our, our favorite girl, Gray. Yeah, so this part is going to be spoilers for volumes of Case Files that come after the Rail Zeppelin. Yes. Uh, so if you are averse to getting spoiled on that stuff, then we uh, will have timestamps and maybe skip ahead to the next section. But yes. that's just a warning. So yeah, Gray. Her backstory is rather mysterious. All we really know from the anime is just that she has a close connection to the realm of death. Um, they refer to, as, refer to her as a sibyl. And she says that Waver rescued her from whatever situation she came from. Yes. Um, what that means, once they eventually explain what her whole deal is, is that she is from a small village in England that Waver theorizes was cursed by Morgan Le Fay. A bajillion, jillion years ago. Yes. To keep a, a ritual or... A, which involves them holding on to Rangminiad, which we will get into more detail later on, but it's a weapon that belonged to King Arthur in life. And Grey is the culmination of this like centuries-long ritual to create a semi-artificial being who possesses the spirit of King Arthur and is capable of wielding Rangminiad again. Yes, it is stated that Ten years prior to meeting Waver was when Gray's face started to change very suddenly into Artoria's, which is in line with the summoning of Artoria in the Fourth Holy Grail War. Oh, I guess it is. That yes. hadn't occurred to me. Oh, really? Yeah, because whenever anyone says ten years ago in Fate, I'm like, oh, it's the Fourth Holy Grail War. <laughs> right. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So that that was around when those changes kickstarted. And I don't I wasn't able to find if there was any concrete lore explanation for like why. I mean, it's pretty easy to sort of like logic out uh, something about Saber happening if there was a curse placed in this village and this like cult of King Arthur that kind of surrounds it, um which apparently Gray's mom was really into, then it makes some kind of weird vaguely deducible sense that when Artore gets summoned that it it starts these changes in Gray. Right. It's like how Jerno's hair turned blonde when Dio died, or whoever that happened. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's <laughs> it's something like that that almost makes sense, but doesn't quite. But it, it makes enough like narrative sense that you don't really think about it too much. Right. There was yeah. a passage I found that talked about how Grey was too scared to look at her face in mirrors because like daily it would like she she could like hear the bones cracking and like moving and reshaping. Oh. That's fucked up. It is fucked up. I, there was some passage, I think, where she might be talking... It might be when she's talking with Rhinez about what happened to her, where she mentions that in some room or something, she doesn't really think that it's odd that there's no mirror, where maybe Rhinez notices that it's a little bit strange that there isn't one. Uh -huh. And then she explains that like, she didn't want any mirrors in her room, and so she's, she's used to having... She's just used to not being around mirrors, so she didn't think anything was particularly strange because she was just... Too scared to look at them. Which is... I love Grey. <laughs> She's had a hard <laughs> life. She really has. 
Yeah. So her her job back in this village is that she was a gravekeeper, right? Yes, she was a gravekeeper. The Japanese Type Moon Wiki says that she was the gravekeeper at the Blackmore mm-hmm. Graveyard, the Blackmore Cemetery, which the previous grave tender was I don't remember. I think it, it's it's it Ber- like Burzak Blackmore. Burzak, Burstak, something like that. Yeah, Burzak Blackmore, who we don't know a ton about. Uh, but who is related to Anserg Blackmore, who was one of the Dead Apostle ancestors? Well, or at yes least a no. noted Dead Apostle. So, so he, Grand Serg Blackmore is one of the Dead Apostle ancestors. However, in Fate Timelines, the Dead Apostle ancestors don't actually exist. Yeah, right. So I think in Fate Timelines, he was just a normal Dead Apostle. Wasn't it? Didn't you say or he'd he been dead for like a thousand been a normal years? Guy. Yeah, because as of... As of uh, the 21st century in Fate Timelines, he's been dead for like 1,700 years. Yeah. So maybe he wasn't even a dead apostle? Yeah. Dead apostles, by the way, if you are listening to this episode and you don't know anything about Fate except for case files, dead apostles are vampires. That's that's yes, all. basically. Yeah. We're going to be referencing actually a pretty good number of dead apostles and dead apostle ancestors in this episode. Dead apostle ancestors are a much more complicated thing, but they don't exist in this timeline, so we're not going to worry about them right now. Yeah, they're a big deal in Tsukihime and pre-Fate Typhoon works, but not yep. not uh, not this one. So mm. it's okay. Just know that basically the Dead Apostle ancestors were like really big deal vampires and Dead Apostles are just general vampires. And there are like varying power levels within just the normie Dead Apostles. Like there are weak Dead Apostles and there are strong, famous Dead Apostles, stuff like that. So anyway, the, the whole point of this ritual that created Grey was so that she would be able to wield Rangaminiad, which is the Lance of King Arthur. Um, so obviously yes. it's the weapon and noble phantasm of both Lancer versions of Artoria in the series, uh, and it's the it appears here as her scythe that also transforms into all sorts of other weapons. The big hammer, uh, we see it as a shield. The significance of Rangaminiad is that it was a weapon crafted by the fairies, much in the same way that Excalibur was. Um, But where Excalibur is kind of just like the best magic sword blast, Rangaminiad has much more significant lore implications. Yes. Um, It does have a big magic blast also, but... (laughs) Yes, it does also have that. If you are someone who is just like anime only then Rangaminiad will be featured very very prominently in the Grand Order Camelot movies that are coming up in the next year oh that's true that's true yeah so people will finally have proper exposure to that right but the significance of Rangaminiad from a lore perspective is that the lance itself is kind of like an allegory that represents a tower like the lance is the tower in smaller form and this tower is located on the reverse side of the world, which is kind of like another layer of existence that exists below the world that we uh, perceive on a regular basis. Yes. It's like, <laughs> this is deep type moon stuff where, yeah. so there is like the planet Earth that we live on, which is just a ball of rocks. There is the reverse side of the world which is where all of the magic creatures live, which is also, like, attached... Over, it's, like, wrapped around the ball of rocks that is the planet yeah. Earth. I think you, you can envision it as, like, a sheet wrapped around a ball. Yes. 
And that is where all of the magic creatures live. That's where all the, like, phantasmal beasts and species live. Yeah, where they went to after the end of the Age of Gods. Yes, that is also important. Mm-hmm. Then there is the the world, which is where all of the people and all of the mages and your more average everyday stuff live. Right. In Every day in the context of Type Moon, I guess. <laughs> right, which is another sheet of existence wrapped over the reverse side of the world, which is wrapped over the planet itself. Yes. And Rangaminiad, the tower, basically functions as like a stake or a nail that drives through both sheets of reality and keeps them both pinned to the planet itself. Yeah, it's essentially just like a big staple. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, it's a big staple. It's a big staple that holds the sort of nebulous, like, conceptual layers of the Earth onto the Earth. Right. So Rangaminiad basically is just like super fucking big deal because yes, very of huge. the power that it has over the reverse side of the world. So I don't think it's known or if it is, it's not clear in English translated sources uh, what the purpose of this ritual was exactly, like why the villagers wanted someone to be able to wield Rangaminiad again. Um, it seems that it was a nefarious purpose given that Gray's existence is super depressing and uh Waver theorizes that the whole thing was created by like the archvillain of Arthurian myth. Right. So I, I don't know if that's just a lack of translated sources to go on or if it's just like nobody it hasn't been revealed yet. And that also brings us to Ad. Our least favorite boy. <laughs> Ad is just a mystic code in some ways. Yes. Um, He's just an item, a mystic code being just like an item possessed by a mage that lets them do things. Right. Mystic codes can be from anywhere to like Ad or Fragorak, as we were talking about, or it can be like Tokiomi's gemstone cane that he has in Fade Zero, which is just, it just has a big fancy gem that has a bunch of magical energy stored into it, or Kanet's volume in Hydrargem. Right. Like, it doesn't matter the, the seriousness of their ability, like things that are more simple like that, or simple, or things that are as big of deal as as Rangaminiad or Fragorak can all count as mystic codes. Right. So Ad was created as a seal for Rangaminiad to kind of hide its existence away from uh, the world in general. And that's that's not hidden in the sense that, like, so that nobody could find it. It was there in order to stop the degradation of Rangaminiad's mystery. So what that means, we mentioned the Age of the Gods before and the reverse side of the world. Mystery is this overarching concept in the Type Moon universe that governs the amount of like arcane or supernatural strength that a concept or property contains. Yes. This is why mages keep magic a secret, is to stop mystery from degrading any further than it already has. Right. So during the Age of the Gods, mystery was all over the place. There was tons of it in the world. Magic was extremely powerful, and it was everywhere. There were magical beasts just, like, out in the normal world and all. And then the uh, Age of the Gods began to decline, starting with the attack of Sapphire the White Titan, which is detailed, and Extella was the beginning of the end of the Age of the Gods. And oh, I then... forgot that that was part of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forget. Thank you for playing Extella and taking one for the team. You're welcome. And then the the true end of the Age of the Gods was the reign of Gilgamesh, who was created by the gods in order to like perpetuate 
their hold on humanity by creating like a semi-divine king to rule mankind but instead he decided to rebel against the gods and break humanity free of their control so you'll see some of the fallout of that in the grand order babylonia anime which just started airing last week and deals very much with the end of the age of the gods and the gods trying to stop humanity from breaking free of them yes but anyway the age of the gods ended there the age of man began and as that happened mystery began to slowly disappear from the world as humans became able to understand their world more and more completely over time the amount of mystery left in it was decreased and as mystery disappeared from the world the strength of all kinds of magecraft did as well uh the reverse side of the world split off from the normal world all of the magical creatures went to the reverse etc etc right waver says something that's very interesting in case finals which he says that sight is the first magecraft i believe or like the first mystery or something like that he says that about mirrors right i I think he refers specifically to the sense of sight he, I mean, okay. he might talk about mirrors also in relation to that. I'm pretty sure he talks about seeing, because I feel like he mentions that a bunch of times. Oh, you're, you're right. I was thinking of, there's, um, I think in, in the Zeroeth episode, if I remember correctly, he says that uh, mirrors are the first way that humanity devised to, like, see into an alternate world. But, uh. yeah, he, do, he does say that, that sight was the first way that humanity became able to degrade mystery. Yes. By, like, observing their surroundings. Right. And there, um, there is a great line in Mahoyo, actually, Mahotsukai no Yoru, Witch on a Holy Night, where Aoko is explaining Magecraft to Soichiro, who is kind of that game's, like, Shiro stand-in, except he's, like, way more cardboard and not actually that enjoyable. He's just, like, enjoyable. a boy. Take, yeah. it, take it from me. He's not actually that good. Aoko talks about how... I think she uses the example of a lighter, saying that fire is something that was a mystery, but now that things like lighters exist, that something like fire has lost its mystery because it's something that can just be created. That is a very good example. Like it will. Right. Like before fire just happened, fire was a thing that had mystery. Now Mm -hmm. that we can just make fire whenever we want to and we know how it works, fire has lost its mystery. That being said, right. there are still lots of like fire-based magecraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's much weaker than it would have been prior to when that invention occurred. Exactly. Right. And that's why Edison is a big deal in the lore of the series, um, is that the invention of the light bulb, like the ability for humans to create artificial light at will, uh, like lit up the planet and drove mystery from the darkness. It was like one of the one of the hugest final blows to the existence of mystery in the world. Yeah, also really rad. Incidentally, the fate extraverse stuff takes place in a future where there is no mystery left in the world. Yes, and thus all the mana has dried up, and so they have to resort to making computer magic happen, and then you right. have Spiritron hackers. <laughs> Yes, exactly. But that that could be an entire other episode. (laughs) Right. So anyway, Ad is created in order to put a seal on Rangamidiad so that it no longer exists in its own form in the world, and thus its mystery can't degrade as mystery disappears from the world itself. And the reason that 
it is a small smarmy bastard is because its personality is modeled after K, Sir K of the Round Table. Uh, I don't know why they decided to program that awful, awful personality into it, but it was probably just so yeah. someone could be a, a constant bully to Gray, and Gray had an <laughs> excuse to shake it because that's really funny. <laughs> right. Add, incidentally, uh, just for the sake of completeness, is a replica of a artifact called a Logos React, which Ooh. is one of the seven super weapons of the Atlas Academy. The Atlas Academy being detailed a lot in Camelot, actually. Yes. So that will also come up in anime soon. Yes. Sherlock goes into it at length. If any of you have played Melty Blood, Shion is from the Atlas. Well, I guess also now FGO people know Shion because she's in Lost Belt, but she goes way back. Yep. Uh, And that's pretty much all we know about Grey, I think. Yeah. Anything else to add on her? No, not really. I would note that the answer may be slightly unsatisfactory to some just because it's like, why why did Gray's face start changing? It just did. <laughs> it just, yeah, that's true. It just did. Oh, here, here's actually a question for you. Um, sure. So when Gray Excal blasts Faker and Dr. Heartless at the end of the series, it has her loosening some of the restrictions. Ah, it, yes, like, the seals. This is, a, this is a battle for survival. This is a battle against, like, a, a worthy enemy or whatever, whatever they are. I don't remember all of the seals. So I know that that was a thing in Fate Prototype on Arthur's version of Excalibur, is that there were 13 seals, one for each of, like, the major knights of yes. the round table. Yes. Um, and in order to be able to use Excalibur, he had to be in a situation that fit like the the restrictions placed on the weapon and that the more restrictions were ticked off the more powerful his excalibur blast could be is that i did not realize that that was also a thing for rongamidiad uh yeah i don't think i knew of it until case files brought it up but i did look into it yeah. later and actually in one of artoria's interludes she states that her version of excalibur actually also possesses them which means that she has been using excalibur and not its like most powerful state I honestly didn't think that Rangaminian had them, but I think it makes sense given the nature of Rangaminian as a thing. Mm-hmm. It says that apparently in life this was something that all of the knights sat down and like agreed upon to put these restraints on the weapons. Right. Yeah, and we can we can link to the restraints of the round table page on the wiki. There's a bunch of them. Uh, one of them isn't actually known, but they all kind of follow a similar. Um, similar theme of like it has to be like a noble and righteous battle yeah that's pretty much it but yeah i think that's kind of it for for gray i don't really have any other notes on her i think that's mostly it oh i did find that here hang on hang on here's the thing so logos react the original one is basically a philosopher stone type object that can replicate a personality Grey was supposed to be King Arthur's body, the Logos React was supposed to replicate King Arthur's personality, and the Holy Grail War was supposed to replicate King Arthur's soul. By fusing all three together, you would get King Arthur. Interesting. Okay. So that was the intent of the ritual. Got it. And it it failed somehow, I guess. Yeah. Because they did not uh, replicate King Arthur's personality. No. Yeah, they didn't. And then they also weren't able to, like unify gray and servant artoria in any way yeah huh i wonder if that has something to do with the fact that artoria isn't dead 
And maybe like the oh. they didn't realize that in forming this ritual. Like it wasn't just her soul that was summoned, but like her entire physical person. Right. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I don't know if I, I don't know if we can ever find any confirmation on that, at least not for a while, but I think that's a good theory. Hmm. Interesting. Oh. Cool. We solved right. lore. <laughs> we sure did. Yeah. Ace detectives. Shall we move on to our next order of business, which is also a yes. long one? So that's everything about Grey. Next up, we're going to talk about the Clock Tower. Um, I love the But clock in order tower. to talk about the Clock Tower, first we need to take a step back and talk about the Mages Association in general. Yes. So the Clock Tower is one of three branches of the Mages Association. The other two are the Atlas Academy, which we mentioned before, and the Wandering Sea. Which has only recently made its appearance in Fate Grand Order. Yes. So Atlas Academy, first off... Its headquarters is in Egypt. Um, it's a place called, what is it, the Titan's Pit. Uh, it's underground, much like the Clock Tower is, now that I think about it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's basically, it's a huge underground labyrinth full of workshops where the mages of the Atlas Academy experiment on creating weapons, basically, is their their main goal. Um, right. They're really complicated, have not been featured directly very much at all, but have been indirectly responsible for a lot of stuff in a lot of various stories throughout the history of the franchise. Yes. Notably, in Grand Order, they are responsible for uh, creating the Trihermes, which is the supercomputer. Yes. And then our vision of it is like a copy of that called Trismegistus that allows us to ray shift. Yes. Uh you do actually, fun fact, there's a three-star craft house in Snapgeo where you can see them. They're like these three obelisks. But they are also in the background of the Dust of Osiris fight in Melty Blood. You can see them. Huh. That is cool. Yeah. So that's the Atlas Academy. Um, they're basically a bunch of assholes in a different way than the Clock Tower is. Uh, yeah. They think that the Clock Tower is basically dumb and incompetent. Yeah. Atlas is something that has the potential to be this cool, like afrofuturist thing where they're just like mm -hmm. in the ground in egypt it feels actually i was thinking about it, it it's actually like it it feels sort of wakanda-esque it kind of does where it's like here are all these dudes in the ground in egypt who have been keeping their secrets from the world and they just look at like all the fucking dumb white people in england like wow you call that magecraft weenies <laughs> right the atlas academy has put out a limited number i don't remember it's five Contracts. contracts yeah something yeah. like that um which are possessed Several. by various different individuals or organizations including one maris billy marisbury atmosphere who yes. called in his contract favor to help build the trismegistus right so there are a very limited number of those that can obligate the atlas academy in order to like come out of their hole and help someone do something yeah um do we know of the location of any others aside from marisbury's I feel like we do, but I can't remember where they are. We might. It is also stated that the the primary one of the primary goals of the Atlas Academy, other than to keep making stupid weapons and then just not using them, uh, is to acquire all of the contracts and destroy them. <laughs> That's true. Yes. <laughs> so that so that no one can ever bother them ever again. Right. Uh, the Atlas Academy is really funny, actually. Yeah, we're big fans of Atlas, as you can probably tell. Yeah, they're they're great. Yeah. But yes, so. Then the third branch is the Wandering Sea, about which basically nothing is known. Yeah. Uh, up until they appeared in Grand Order at the beginning, uh, not at the beginning, but early into 
Cosmos in the Lost Belt. Literally all that was known is that they were mentioned once in Tsukihime. Um, they are only interested in Magecraft from the Age of Gods, because that's just the best kind of Magecraft there is. And their headquarters is inside of a mobile mountain that just, like, travels around the floor of the North Sea. That's basically it. And then we in Grand Order stumble upon that mountain because of a distress signal, and there we meet alternate timeline Chion. Right. Um, which I guess leaves the most... Well, it's weird. I don't even want to call it the most traditional, but I guess what it's sort of like the normie branch of the Mages Association, the Clock Tower. Mm-hmm. Which is just kind of doing a very straightforward, like, preservation of mystery thing. This is why they have such staunch rules about secrecy. This is why, like, uh, Rin tries to kill Shiro in Unlimited Blade Works. This is why Aoko in Mohotsukai no Yoru tries to kill Soichiro. Because you can't let anyone see your magecraft. Because that'll weaken mystery. Right. So the clock tower is the setting for most of what happens in Case Files. It is an underground facility underneath the British Museum. Yes, which is probably one of my favorite details. Now having been to the British Museum and being like, there could totally be a magic school under here. This this space is ginormous. So it's some hot new lore, which was recently revealed in one of the volumes of Case Files, which is that uh, the clock tower facilities are built above something called Spiritual Tomb Albion, which is the corpse of a mountain-sized dragon that did not go to the reverse side of the world at the end of the Age of Gods, but then later regretted that decision and tried to dig through the surface of the planet in order to get back there. I don't know if that's just impossible or if it just failed, but it died in the process, and now its enormous corpse is underground, and the Mages Association made their home there to like feast upon its magical energy. It, yeah, it says the deeper you go, the stranger things get as you go closer, if you, as you grow closer to the reverse side of the world. So I guess it is kind of a depth thing. But I don't think, like, okay. I don't think that the reverse side of the world is actually like a hollow earth thing where, you know, you, you dig to the center of the earth and then you find like Elvis and Marilyn Monroe <laughs> and like all the dragons. <laughs> I right. don't think it's like that. <laughs> but maybe, maybe it is. Maybe, maybe it is. I, I don't think it's quite like that, but I think it's probably like, you know, a thing we do in at the end of Babylon, not to spoil that because there might be anime onlys um, listening to this, but you know, the thing with like going underground and its connection to the underworld. Oh, true, true, true. Yeah, it could yeah. be that. And it, it could also, I was thinking that it's like, if we think about the the world and the reverse side of the world as being sheets wrapped around the, the rock ball that is Earth then the sheets probably have a sort of, like, defined thickness. Or at least, like, if not defined physically, then, like, a metaphysical thickness. Right. Like, as you so get I, to the I bottom of one sheet, on. then you become closer to the top of the other one, which is, like, theoretically underneath it. Right. So, anyway, the structure of the clock tower as an organization. This is something we've heard some questions about. Like, obviously, all of the big deal people in the clock tower are like constantly making manipulations and backstabbing each other and stuff like that. It's kind of like your worst college bureaucratic nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There are, there are 12 faculties and then policies, which is sort of a faculty, but doesn't like do classes. So it doesn't really count. The governing body of the clock tower is basically two people. Uh, there is the headmaster and then the assistant headmaster. The headmaster, nothing is known about him. 
we don't have a name for him or anything. All we know is that it's been the same guy for like the 2000 years that the clock tower has existed. Yeah, probably one of my favorite little bits of, of fate lore. The current assistant headmaster is a woman named Bartholomew Lorelei. Yes, who is mentioned in Tsukihime adjacent things. Yeah. I don't know if she's ever been relevant in case files. I can't remember if they ever say... I feel like there might be one time where they say, like, Bartholomew or or refer to refer to the family somehow, but I... It's just, it's, I don't know. Yeah, something. She's basically, um, like, high-key, the one of the best magi ever. She's basically, like, close to true magic levels of, of good, and she has these blue blood magic circuits which they don't really explain but are apparently like the best kinds of magic circuits yeah she also is one of the 13 lords of the clock tower yes so what a lord is is that each of the faculties have a lord who's just like the head of that branch of instruction in that faculty there's an excellent reference image which we will link in the episode description that has them all laid out here real talk if you whoever made this chart if you're listening to us Thank you so much. <laughs> this is probably yes. one of the best things to ever happen to English-speaking Type Moon fans. <laughs> oh, definitely. It has all of the faculties. It has every named character who's associated with each of them. It's uh, so It has so like, useful. major factions, the ranks of the clock tower, stuff like that. It's, it's really good. Yeah. But just a few of the notable ones. So Bartholomew Lorelei is the Lord of Policies, which is the... Oh, she runs policies. God damn. Yeah, she runs policies. <sighs> I, I hate her already. Policies is represented in case files by Adashino, who is incredibly sus. Who is the worst. <laughs> also notable character from policies is Gordolf. 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 Uh, the new director of Caldea. Who, if you're an anime-only person and haven't played FGO, Gordolf music is the son of... I've, I have literally just forgot his name as I was going to say it. The other Gord. 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 Yeah. Gord. Or, I don't. I don't remember. Oh the, my god! What's his fucking name? Oh my the god! The really obnoxious, overweight guy who summons Siegfried in Apocrypha. Yeah, he's he's he he like just kind of outies after Siegfried dies and has a drinking problem, and he comes back later. Right. Uh, Gordolf is his son. So then, uh, Waver, Elmoy the Second is the Lord of Norwich, which is the name for the Faculty of Modern Magecraft. Another one is Faculty of Archaeology. Uh, we don't know their lord, but it had uh, Lev Laner Floros, from, the first bad guy of FGO is from there. Also from there were Aozaki Toko, Cornelius Alba, and Arya Soren. Of Karno Kyokai fame. Zokin Mato was from the Faculty of Curses. The Faculty of Astronomy, their lord is Maris Burianosphere, who's the FGO guy, and Olga Marie from Case Files. Yep. Uh, Kirstaria, also a notable member of that. He was really close to Marisbury, and apparently, according to this chart, uh, Aoko is also in Astromancy. Oh. Which I did cool. not know. Then there's the Faculty of Mineralogy. Min- mineralogy? Min- mineralogy. Also known as Kistur. So this, uh, this one's interesting and raises some questions for me about how the title of Lord being passed along actually works. Because Kaneth was the Lord of this faculty. Not of modern magecraft. Right. So you would think that Waver inheriting the Elmoloi debt and name and all of that would have taken over mineralogy. Right. But he took over modern magecraft instead, which I guess was just like vacant of a lord because Dr. Heartless was no longer around, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. Um, 
So I, I don't know then if the title of Lord is just an inherited thing and when like one of the families that has that title has like their head come of age, they just get slotted into whichever faculty can receive them at the time. Yeah, I don't know. That's how it, it seems to work. Right. Apparently, according to this chart, and I was just, just doing some searching on the wiki, of the, the major factions within the clock tower, the Bartholomew, the Trambelio, and the Melusteae, Melus, Melustea, the Melustea now are in charge of mineralogy. Presumably, maybe that was just because they are, are listed as the neutral faction. Apparently, mm-hmm. I don't, my, my theory is like with Kaneth dead, they just were like, okay, we'll be standing owners of this, of this faculty until like the position can be filled that makes sense and then the last like super notable faculty is the faculty of spiritual evocation uh their lord is rolfurus nuatere ulifis who is has not actually appeared in any sort of anime anything but is the father of sola ui from fate zero and uh bram from who briefly appears in case files just to like have smirky conversations with Ryanets and talk shit about Waver. Yes, he appears very explicitly at the beginning. He's not super important, but oftentimes when Ryanets is on the phone and someone is not happy, it's usually Bram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Or at least it's implied to be. Yeah, spiritual evocation is the... It's all about, like, summoning stuff. Like, the Department of Summoning is within the Faculty of Spiritual Evocation, so they kind of deal with Grail War stuff whenever that comes up. Uh... Rocco Belfabon, the guy who gives Sisugo the piece of the round table at the beginning of Apocrypha, is a professor in the Faculty of Spiritual Evocation. So that that's that. I, I tend to think of this as being very like collegiate in nature, but it's unlike unlike where you would say, oh, like I'm taking classes in archaeology or whatever. You can also just say Esther, which is apparently a, a substitute for saying the Faculty of Archaeology. I don't know right. why the system exists, but Type Moon is a yeah. thing, so... There you go. Like some of them, Animosphere, for instance, and Eulophis are drawn from, it seems to be their... The name of the Lord. Lord. Yeah. Who presides over them. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you could either say that like Waver is the head of modern magecraft, or you can say he is the Lord of Norwich. Yes. Because both are true. Right. Uh, oh, I realized speaking of astromancy that we didn't end up talking about the example of... Um... They go into pretty extensive detail in the Case Files episode where they talk about uh, the heliocentric and geocentric theories. Yeah, so that well, that was going to be our, our next thing, is what, what exactly is the deal with modern magecraft? Oh, okay, that's right. You're right, they, they do um, cover it pretty well in that episode. So modern magecraft basically means anything from within, like, what is it, like the last thousand years? Uh, basically, yeah, modern is, is very, is a very loose term because as you can see in that, or I guess if you've watched Case Files, which hopefully you have if you've come here since this is sort of intended to explain Case Files, they talk about how in that one episode where they go into the difference between heliocentric and geocentric theory, they say that heliocentric based magecraft is too young to be considered reliable and stable. Right. I think it speaks to the fact that, like, the mystery started degrading and magic started getting worse at the end of the Age of God, at the end of the Age of Gods, which was like five thousand years ago. So there has been a long history of magecraft getting worse and worse. So by that kind of timescale measure, 
anything that's like post like the classical era is very recent in the grand scheme of things. Yes. And the clock tower is already kind of unique among the other branches of the Mages Association in that they care about anything that happened less than 5,000 years ago. That's also true. Yeah. So the faculty of modern magecraft is just like extra accelerated. It is wonder then that Flat Escardos, our, our favorite boy, it has such like modern technology rooted magecraft that he uses. Like his mm-hmm. own personal magecraft system is very like video gamey. It's very techy. Right. And it's very strong. I don't think there really has been a canon explanation for this, but we do know that in all the timelines where Waver doesn't meet Flat, he becomes like a world level threat and is eradicated by the counterforce. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine more of like what the source of Flat's power is going to be elaborated on in volume four of Strange Fake once we have translations yeah. for that we can read. He's an alien. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's probably an alien. Yeah. <laughs> I love Strange Fake. So that is uh, the deal with that, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Is there anything else to say about modern magecraft? Not a ton. I mean, that's really just that, like, modern is kind of a, a jab because it's really not that modern. So let's say one more thing about the clock tower before moving on, which is their various ranking systems <laughs> yes this is important especially for that that uh ceremony that you see Sven have and and how waver says another one of my students who outranks me which you might be thinking oh waver's a lord what's the deal with that lord is kind of a political title but it has absolutely no bearing on one's ability whereas there are two different ranking systems that measure someone's skill or uniqueness as a mage so the the first one is just like a rank bottom to top sort of thing there are seven ranks they go from lowest to highest frame count cause fez pride brand and grand so waver is ranked as a fez which is listed as a a mature magi without any outstanding powers Right below that is Cause, which is said to be an average magus. And right above that is Pride, which is the rank that Sven is achieving as of the end of this season of Case Files. Real talk, neither Ben nor I really know what Sven did to deserve Pride. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, for a little bit of reference, the other like notable character who is ranked Pride in the series is Zoken, who helped establish the Holy Grail War. And has been alive for like 600 years. Yeah, Sven is like a guy who smells gray. (laughs) Right. So I don't know what what the deal is there, but as part of Waver's role within the organization of the Clock Tower is that he has... He he is not a particularly skilled magus himself. Like, he has the rank you would expect of someone who's like been around for a while and knows what they're doing but isn't special at all. But he has instructed a significant number of students who have gone on to outrake him. It is also noted, I guess, that there is probably some level of, of breadth within each um, each rank, because if you look at the other Fezes, there, you got Lord Elmoy II, we also have Lev, um, who obviously mm-hmm. they didn't know was actually a demon pillar, but right. Melvin is also in that tier, as well as Bazette. And those are two very different kinds of mages. Melvin yeah, was definitely. essentially like a support. 
<laughs> Melvin, yeah. who is a bard, and Bazette, yeah, he's, who is he's a bard. A fighter. He uses inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> right, Bazette, who is like one of the strongest like hand to hand fighters in in Type Moon, and Melvin, who right. is, I think, really. It it seems like Magic Crest tuners are are a thing, but yeah. So I don't think that had ever been mentioned before Melvin came to. Exist. I don't believe so. No, but it's it's cool. But it definitely makes sense that he's rich as fuck because just like knowing how mages work, if he just has the ability to at will make other mages like twenty percent better at using magecraft, yeah, then that's super valuable. Yes, and definitely something people would pay out the ass for. Yes. And the general point of mage families is that they're all super old, which means they're all generally pretty old money. Uh, also notable in this ranking system is that after the end of Observer on the Timeless Temple, the main character of FGO is granted the rank of cause, which is funny because we like literally undestroy all of existence, and they're like, <laughs> "Okay, you're you're a bit below average." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just goes to show you uh, how weird the clock tower is. <laughs> right which is is quoted as something of a, a grievance by various members of caldea once the mages association is like okay now that this has happened and like you've summoned all these servants and stuff we're gonna come in to take over which is the inciting incident of part two of the story yes um everyone's like okay they're they're going to come take us over even though we did all of the work and also they don't respect the main character enough to give you like a decent rank yes Shoutouts to policies. Yep. <laughs> policies is the worst. If there's anything you take away from this video, it's that. <laughs> yep. Video. Also, real Podcast. quick, there's one other ranking system, which is uh, the color system. The colors are used to uh, denote mages who, regardless of their power level, have particularly unique abilities. We know basically nothing about like what each color means, just that there are three really good ones, and then four that are kind of lesser. So the really good ones are red, blue, and yellow, and then there's orange, purple, green, and black. Uh, the only two characters we know who have a color associated with them are the Aozaki sisters. Aoko Aozaki is, is a blue mage, and Toko is orange, which is a major point of grievance for her. Yeah, I, they, they haven't really mentioned the color system at all since those two. So I don't know if they're just trying to forget about it, or... Or if it just hasn't been relevant, maybe it's only something that gets given to very exceptional people? Well, that that's kind of the idea, is that it's something that's only given to super exceptional people. But, yeah, the fact they haven't brought it up again in, like, 20 years leads me to believe it's not very important anymore. Yeah, yeah. There definitely have been, I feel like, people of notable significance who could have received color titles, but... Aoko is a big, big deal since she essentially She's discovered the fifth magic. <laughs> yeah. So it it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Also, I'm pretty sure we talked about true magic versus magecraft in another episode. So right. if you don't follow that, go listen to that. We're not going to make this an hour longer than it needs to be. <laughs> yeah, that's that's another one of those topics we could spend way more time on. Yes. But yeah, that's, that's the clock tower. Mages want to reach the root. In order to do that, they need very elaborate schemes in order to pull off their schemes they need political power so they're constantly fighting with each other for that yes they have all of their complicated rankings and faculties it's pretty cool stuff it is really cool stuff and that that's probably my favorite thing about case files is finally getting a look into 
how all of this is structured and what actually goes on in the clock tower. Yeah, I also agree. <laughs> the existence of policies is the best world building this series has ever done. Easily, easily. Because it's like you've... I, I think I think you see it at its best with that the episode with the rat guy. Oh yeah, where like I was I was thinking that the two parter um, with like the house under the thunderstorms, where policies just shows up and is like, okay, I declare you are the bad guy. Yeah, that's also a good well, that's a good example Paperwork of how policies done. is the worst. <laughs> right. I think the 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 rat guy episode is a good example of just like how bureaucracy, how much bureaucracy matters to clock tower mages because. Waver literally oh, just bluffs yeah. his way into into beating a mage who's definitely way power, way more powerful than him by just threatening mm-hmm. him with, like, bureaucratic repercussions. I guess it, it makes sense that Policies is that powerful since um, Bartholomew is the lord there, and since the, the headmaster basically doesn't exist for all intents and purposes. Right. It seems like she calls most of the shots. I do wonder if we'll ever get more content with her. I'd, I'd be curious to know a bit more about her. Me too. I feel like she's got to show up in Case Files eventually. (sighs) She has to. Like, way later in the series. Yeah. We'll see, though. There is one other major pillar of world building in the institutions of the Naziverse, and that is the church. The Holy Church. The non-denominational, we- well, <laughs> I shouldn't say non-denominational, but it is called the Holy Church, notably. I'm only stressing this because it's not the Catholic Church. It is <laughs> definitely not Catholic TM. It is TM. definitely not the Catholic Church. It is the Holy Church, but it basically is mm. the Catholic Church. Also, they have a pope, so. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. <laughs> so we're going to touch on them only super briefly to talk about executors. Which fucking rule... Yeah, executors are the best and coolest characters in everything they appear in. Yeah, they CL uh, from Tsukihime is an executor. She's in the burial agency, so she's like top top executor. Everyone's favorite black key wielding monster, <laughs> Kire Kotomine Kotomine Kire also an executor. Is an executor. Carbo yeah. Frampton, a recent addition to the ranks of known executors, um, mm-hmm. are basically just like church special forces they're, they're just like church black ops that do specific tasks primarily hunting down dead apostles and and other like evil beings that go against the word of god <laughs> yeah or what an you. interesting note about the executors is that um the church uses the name of the holy grail as an excuse to like send executors to watch over it even though they know it's basically just a big mana hole and doesn't actually have anything to do with the Holy Grail. They use the name as an excuse in order to monitor something that they know has the potential to be extremely significant. Yes. Yeah, the church are pretty sly dogs in and of themselves. They have a much smaller presence in the Fate series, but I they are definitely more big in, in Tsukihime. Tsukihime. Just right. given the prevalence of dead apostles and all that. I will just say one other thing that we didn't talk about. I only am mentioning this. It's not really that important to case files, but the executors are essentially the church counterpart to the association's ceiling designation enforcers. Uh, yes. Um, and the ceiling designation enforcers are, are basically just they're, they're the mages association special ops who get sent to deal with mages who have ceiling designations put on them. To, uh, we should mention ceiling a- designations because they are very funny. 
So the ceiling designations are handed out by the leadership of the Mages Association to mages who are perceived to have like who have done something that doesn't doesn't fly even with the incredibly lax rules of what it's okay to do for the sake of reaching the root. Examples include um, Kiritsugu's dad uh, and yeah. Toko Ozaki. Right. So in that flashback episode of Fate Zero, when Kiritsugu's dad turns everyone on the island into vampires, and then the Mages Association turns up to like genocide the island. Um, <laughs> yes. That is, everyone shows up there to burn everything down because a ceiling designation was placed on Emi and Noritaki. Yes. Uh, the funny thing about ceiling designations is that once they, once one is placed on you and the enforcers, like, find and take you in, you're, you become a prisoner, uh, but you don't, like, go to jail. They just lock you in, like, the bottommost depths of the clock tower and let you keep doing your research down there. Because the whole point is not to stop you from doing it, it's to make sure you're doing it in a place where the rest of the clock tower can see what you're doing and benefit from your information. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, now let's move on to specific stuff from, uh, from Case Files. So, the Mystic Eyes collection train is weird. I'm not really sure where to start with it. Um as an entity it's it's complicated <laughs> yeah so we know that it's it's run by a dead apostle yes um, rita rose N. yes uh and we see the deputy manager who is that sort of spirity ghosty figure that takes carbo's mystic eyes and she is a projection of whoever the actual like owner of the um the train is right um, so Mystic Eyes themselves are one of the oldest things in Titan. They are a major part of Tsukihime, but even before then, they were, like, the major thing in Kara no Kyokai, which was Nasu's first series. The... Where do you start with Mystic Eyes? I can take this one if you'd like. Yeah, go ahead. So the thing about Mystic Eyes is that they are sort of magecraft adjacent. The wiki calls them a mutation in the magic circuits located in the area around the area around one's eyes, but they are not specifically always a magecraft thing. It seems as though did um I can't remember actually because uh, uh, so Araya awakens people's origins. But I don't necessarily yes. know if all of the people in Karno Kyokai have magic circuits. I don't really think that it's ever mentioned if they do or don't. I don't think they they do, actually. I don't think anybody in Karno Kyokai except... Toko? Toko, Cornelius Alba, and Arya actually use Magecraft at all. Oh, and then and then some of the um, the girl in the sixth movie does that too i think oh with the with the fairy the fairy the, the not yeah. fairies tm right the little sprites that get like f- closer to fairy powers by like borrowing their shape if i remember yeah, yeah. mystic eyes are weirdly kind of more of a like psychic thing which is is much more of a karna kyokai type topic than than a fate thing that hasn't really been mentioned mm-hmm. in type moon stuff in a long time but it's basically like if magecraft is something you can train at and and learn and harness your magic circuits, psychic abilities are just kind of like weird people mutations that just sort of happen that mm-hmm. aren't as like controlled. 
And Mystic Eyes are, I think, more in line with that kind of ability and that you can just sort of get them regardless of your ability as a, as a magus. In Case Files, they actually reference the Mystic Eyes of Death perception, which is what both Shiki's Shiki Tono and Shiki Ryogi have. They mention it as being just a myth, just a legend, that it doesn't really exist as a, a cute way to like hand wave it. But yeah. Also, just uh, an interesting thing to note, saying about like, do people in Karno Kyokai have magic circuits? Uh, Asagami Fujino, ha- who has the Mystic Eyes of Distortion. Yes. Notably, she does not, or at least her Mystic Eyes don't come about as a result of a mutation in the magic circuits. Okay. Like that. It says here, she's a special case since her Mystic Eyes were the result of her family's psychic ability evolving to a point that it is on par with Magecraft. And this raises the possibility that other Mystic Eyes are also just a powerful type of psychic ability. I see. So, they don't necessarily have to be Magecraft at all. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like for most people who have Mystic Eyes, they're just something that they use to augment their, like, abilities. Like, with, mm-hmm. with cases like Ryogi, Shiki, Shikitono, um, Fujino, it's kind of like their whole shtick. But as you see, like, Karabo is a totally competent executor, like, way stronger than most humans in his own right, but also is just burdened with the Mystic Eyes of uh, Past Vision, or as they later call them, Transients? Mystic Eyes of Transients, yeah. I think that's what they call them. Um, that's what they decide to call also them. Also notable, like, uh, Ilya von Einsburn has the Mystic Eyes of Binding, but she just, like, uses them when relevant, and it isn't her her main thing at all. Yeah. I can't remember when she uses them, but I think she uses them on Shiro. And... She uses them to, to capture Shiro. Yeah. Like, he goes to talk to her at the playground, and then she's like, you fucking idiot. And That's right, yeah. And Mystic Eyes of Binding him, and then he wakes up in the castle. Yeah, is that where he wakes up in her bedroom or something like that? Yeah. He's, like, tied to the bed, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Toko has them. Uh, Hephaestion has them. She just has Mystic Eyes. Yep. In addition to being a servant, it seems. Right. Which is kind of an interesting combo. We don't usually. Well, actually, no. I guess that that has happened because there, there uh, Medusa has them. Guys. Yeah. But I guess Hephaestion doesn't uh, have as many like standout abilities. Medusa Musashi has um, the Imperian Eye, which is a sort of mystic. Eyes. Oh, oh, I hadn't thought about the Imperian Eye in a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, definitely one of the more upsetting mystic guys ever. The mi- <laughs> the mystic guys of free wins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they just show you how to beat your opponent uh yeah they uh, they kind of explain everything about the mystic eye collection training itself in the show that you need to but mystic guys are just in general these kinds of things uh they also have a ranking system ah which, which is, is the noble color system <laughs> i believe so yes yes and they reference this uh several times in case files where uh i think they talk about like oh is this like rainbow or jewel and mm-hmm. I can't remember, I think uh, Yvette says that. When they say that, like, there's going to be a type on uh, Norma, not Norma Goodfellow, that's someone else. Trisha? Um, Tr- yeah, Trisha Fellows says that, like, with her future sight eyes, she sees that there's going to be a rainbow mystic eye on, on sale this auction. The rainbow class is the best kind. Known rainbow class mystic eyes are the mystic eyes of death perception, crimson moons, unnamed mystic eyes, crimson moon being like the biggest person in Tsukihime. Yes. And uh, Baylor's unnamed mystic eyes, Baylor being the Celtic death god, right? Yes. 
Yeah, and Jewel includes Riders, Mystic Eyes, um, or Medusa's uh, Mystic Eyes of Petrification, uh, Ophelia, who features in Lost Belt 2, Ophelia Famersaloni, <laughs> her Mystic Eye of Reversion, and Carbo Frampton's Mystic Eyes of Transience. Right. So Mystic Eyes, Mystic Eyes are usually like a weird peripheral thing. Yes. That exists alongside other abilities. Oh, um, also, the um, 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 the guy in the Waver Backstory episode also has Mystic Eyes that are just like some basic bitch kind of like binding Mystic Eye. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, cause he like jumps Waver with them. Yes, yeah. They're cool. I like Mystic Eyes a lot. Mostly just because I like Karanokyo guy a lot. Yeah. And they're a big deal there. Yes, that is that is real. Yeah. Uh, we've got some good Mystic Eyes in our Fado Seas. We do. I forgot yeah. about them, actually. Yeah, Felix's Mystic Eyes are still probably the coolest thing we've ever done. Yeah. Shit rules. <laughs> Perfect ultimate Felix. <laughs> uh, a joke for only us two that no one else will get. Yes. Maybe one day we can we can yell about our, our Fatoses on an episode if we ever have nothing else to talk about. Mystic Eyes are not, like, a huge deal, but they're a cool thing that can be used to, like, augment your abilities. So... It makes sense that something like the Mystic Eyes Collection Train would be kind of a peripheral thing that most Magi don't really care about, but those who are interested in them would go to potentially great lengths to get what they want from them. Yes. Because it would just make you a better mage to have cool Mystic Eyes. Also, I imagine that the reason that the audience is so small also is because the amounts of money that they're just throwing at those Mystic Eyes is so astronomical. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I think we, we tend to kind of assume that all notable magi are stupid rich. Yeah. But I don't know how true that actually is. Yeah. I mean, like, I think what I have gathered is that if you look at, say, uh, the Tosakas and the Edelfelts, they probably have, like, a big fancy mansion. They're definitely, like, rich. But it seems like <laughs> Yvette's family and Melvin's family are, like, very, very rich. Yeah. Just given the way that they, like, are presented during the auction part itself. But it's like, even right. Melvin hits that point where he has to start, like, borrowing money. <laughs> and and yeah. Weaver has to use Ryan as his credit card. <laughs> I forgot about Mom's credit card. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, I gotta use Ryan as his credit card. <laughs> Definitely one of the funniest moments in Case Files. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Ryan has... And there, there are also noted things like scattered here and there throughout the lore about like the measures that less well-to-do mages have to have to resort to in order to <laughs> like get space and materials and stuff yes like donating your semen back when yes <laughs> mana transfer was still like very vocally canon right yeah those are the good old days <laughs> i don't even know if that's really been retconned out of existence or if people have they've just decided not to talk about it like I think it still exists. It's just n- nobody mentions it. Yeah, nobody mentions it except for the hentai artists because they'll they'll take that as their canon excuse for two characters to fuck. Right. Which yeah. power to you? But yeah. Other than that, what else were we going to talk about? There's another thing, right? Oh, we were going to talk about Doctor Heartless a little bit. But before before we talk about Doctor Heartless, I doubt you have any sort of answer for this because I have no idea where to start. Right. Do you know what the deal is with like the big train laser <laughs> that they use at the end? <laughs> You know, no. <laughs> okay. I don't know. They put 
they basically like shoot mystic eyes or they they put mystic eyes into like a cannon it seems like they destroy the mystic eyes but use the like ridiculous amounts of magical energy probably harnessed in them as some kind of like beam yeah my assumption is that because of the nature of mystic eyes they are probably like very powerful mana batteries should you choose to use them as such i guess that makes sense I'll accept that explanation. That is that is what I theorized after watching that ridiculous scene. Um, I don't know why the train transforms into a big laser. Maybe it could just be a failsafe in case they encounter some kind of something along the way. It seems like they they did have some vague procedures for dealing with all of the nonsense that was going on. Yeah, I think when you're in a line of business like that, you have to plan around the fact that eventually some dickhole mage is going to try to hijack the process in order to just get all the mystic eyes. Yeah, right, exactly. So yeah, that's my theory, is that just because, especially like higher level mystic eyes, because it seems to be like properties contained within the eyes themselves, you know, it's not necessarily, because you can take them out of the body and right. they'll still function and just fine. And give them to someone else. Yeah. yeah. So I imagine it, it must just be that that strong mystic eyes are just very powerful magical objects. Right. That's the best I can do. Okay. I'll accept that explanation. Yeah. Okay. And uh, finally, we're going to talk about Dr. Heartless and Faker. Yeah. Not the first so. time Faker has been dropped <laughs> in the series, but certainly <laughs> the first time in a long while. Yeah. So Faker comes about because Dr. Heartless has the goal of summoning a surf. So Waver, Waver figures out the who done it, but not the why done it. So it creates like a nice plot hook for future volumes. Season to, two. To go Season off. two. <laughs> Season two. Yes. Season minus one, so we can get the the case that has Toko. Oh, I want more Toko content. I can't, give her to me. I can't believe they skipped the Toko one. You can't keep her from us, Nasu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about summoning servants. Because this, I know, is something that has caused a lot of confusion among people I've talked to is when and how can you get a servant? Right. Like, people kind of offhandedly refer to servants as just being familiars a yes. lot. Which is a, a, a good segue to state that they are not familiars, technically. Yes. Uh, and the term ghostliner is one which has confused a few people. Um, I'm going to say, if someone uses the term ghostliner... You can just assume they mean servant. Yeah. Because rarely is it used in another context. However, that's actually wrong. Wow. A ghost liner, a ghost liner refers to the like highest power level of familiar. Oh, this I did not know. Servants are not technically familiars. They're just kind of referred to them because they carry some similarities. They're like other spirits that are summoned and bound to the summoner's will. But servants, I think, or uh, familiars, I think, are usually a kind of elemental or other sort of, like, nature spirit. Oh. Whereas, whereas servants are heroic spirits and thus are not familiars. I just had a... The, I was looking at the Ghostliner page and I found out that another example of... An, an actual example of a Ghostliner are Alice Kwanji's Ploy Kickshaw, which you wouldn't know about this, but... No. For those of you who have read what is translated of Mahotsukai no Yoru, Alice Kuanji is sort of the main, like, strong mages. She's a witch, and she has these sort of fantasy-themed familiars that are called the ploy kiksha, um, or just ploys. They're basically just really, really strong 
familiars that kind of can also function as like this pseudo reality marble kind of thing. Like they're very reality altering. That that fight between Aoko and and Alice is really cool. But now I understand the context for what a real ghost liner is. <laughs> Cause that those things are like super high power level for like a a just a mages to be touting. They are very like servant adjacent in terms of the scope of their abilities. They're very more like illusion based and fantasy centric. Are they like distinct entities? Like it's very clearly not a thing that Alice can do. It's something that she can direct another entity to do yes okay yeah she's like these are my there she's like these are my ploys <laughs> this is what i do with them cool <laughs> yeah um so yeah it it's pretty funny that the only context in which ghostliner is usually used is actually wrong but that's that's what it is it's a really good familiar usually people use it to mean servant even though servants aren't actually familiars yes but now, so the, the conditions to actually summon a servant. Right. So the thing about it is that the reason that the servants are summoned during Holy Grail Wars is you need this, like, astronomical amount of mana, right? That can only be supplied by something like the Grail. The Greater Grail. Yes, the Greater Grail. Sorry. <laughs> Too vague. <laughs> <laughs> so it's usually not possible to summon a servant outside of the context of a Holy Grail. War. Correct. The way that the summoning actually happens is different depending on what system it is. The one that's most familiar to people is the Fuyuki system, which was created by three families at the beginning of the First Grail War, uh, where the, the Tosikas provided the land in Fuyuki, which was like at a conflux of ley lines, and thus could access the Greater Grail. The Einsburns provided the knowledge of how to use the Third Magic to like complete Heaven's Feel at the end for the process of getting a wish granted and the makiri who later moved to japan and renamed themselves to the mato provided the information of how to craft the command command spells command spells command seals they're both they're interchangeable they're both used yeah um in order to control the servants that are summoned so that that's the most usual one the moon cell one is weird and i don't really understand it because i i hate everything about that moon. it's a computer uh but it, it, it's it's because computer. Um, the Caldea system is an interesting one. So the Caldea system works even though it really shouldn't for a couple of reasons. First is that after many, many failed experiments and attempts to summon a servant, all of them, like, a servant would appear inside of someone's body like they initially planned, and then the demi-servant would, like, immediately die. Mashu was the first experiment that succeeded because of the servant that they summoned. So once they have Galahad, then things change because due to his identity as shielder, he possesses his shield, which is a symbol of the round table. And the round table is conceptually significant as a place where heroes gather. Yes. Through that kind of conceptual reinforcement of their summoning system they are able to acquire more servants the other thing that they are lacking that manages to work anyway is the energy source to sustain the servants mashu gets around that by virtue of the fact that she is a demi-servant a like servant's power within a human body so it uses like human 
metabolism basically to to power itself which works somehow (laughs) which works somehow sure but other servants which are just like manifested heroic spirits need an energy source which can normally only be provided by access to the greater grail which they don't have in caldea obviously what happens here is that the way the protagonist of grand order provides the energy for all of his servants is actually that merlin just like because he's the best ever is able to send that much mana like across timelines from the verse side of the world in his tower to caldea in order to keep all of our servants running oh i actually didn't know that but when when really? do they no i didn't know that actually when but when when does that connection get formed uh when foe shows up oh yeah that makes sense okay yeah. got it got it so merlin merlin somehow gets whiff of what's going on in caldea sends foe yeah. i i don't know how foe ends up at caldea i don't know foe is primate murder so like whatever <laughs> Yeah, Foe is one of, is the first of the 27 dead apostle ancestors. Yes. What a fucking he, he twist. The, the beast of Earth and beast number four. Yep. So, Foe, Foe just is out yeah, there. Yeah, alongside beast three, R and L, uh, you know, Kiara yes. and Kama. Also, he is capable of enacting a miracle that exceeds the scope of true magic. The complete revocation of death. Yep. Which is how, uh, spoiler alert for the end of part one of grand order he brings mash back to life after she dies fighting uh Gideon. Yep. which is still nutty and then oh no oh what's that thing called ben the thing force of providence. yeah yeah that one <laughs> yeah he transplants his force of providence into her yeah which is just some stupid bullshit deus ex machina word they made up so that could happen also completely unrelated to anything we're talking about but i've heard people saying that in the more recent chapters of cosmos and the lost belt foe is actually like regaining his sentence uh yeah i was going to say based off of that and event stuff like there yeah. is foe talking again so yeah so i and like the the cost of him bringing mash back to life was supposed to be that like he just turned into an animal right. he was effectively um, just a weird dog right but it seems that that is somehow being undone which is interesting yeah i don't know what that means like larger implications wise but i guess we'll find out Anyway, so the point is that uh, in order to summon a servant, you need, uh, usually you need a catalyst, you need a mana source, and you need a system. And Dr. Heartless had one of the three of those yeah. <laughs> So the way that his whole plot that forms like the core of the Rail Zeppelin case is that he needed the mystic eyes collection train in order to tap into the fuyuki system and what he also needed was waiver so waiver waiver explains all this in the second to last episode or maybe the last episode I yes think. but just but um, if you didn't get it because the way the way he talks can be hard to follow sometimes yes. so i'm just gonna run through it here the whole point of the little episode in there where the train gets diverted through the Triad of Einash, the vampire forest, is that the Mystic Eyes collection train runs on top of ley lines, which are like a, a bog standard fantasy thing. They're just like places where mana runs below the earth. Yes. So the Mystic Eyes collection train 
can only go on top of ley lines. It follows like a certain path following like a certain ley line around Europe. Dr. Heartless redirects the train in order to force a connection between ley lines that aren't normally linked to each other. The connection that he makes links the ley line that the train runs on to one that runs like across Eurasia into Japan and is part of like the nexus where the uh, Fuyuki system is set up. So by making that connection, he is able to make like a, a metaphysical connection to Fuyuki. Right. And Type Moon, however, just like oh, yeah. I was just going to say, and Type Moon, Type Moon Magecraft is all about concepts <laughs> and having right. this conceptual link to Fuyuki. And then also, what you're I'm assuming about to explain is the whole thing with Waver is enough of a conceptual yes. link to make this happen because it was something that was like right. created as a we talked about this in a previous episode, greater thaumaturgical system. So, uh-huh. like, the properties of the world have already been altered by the creation of the Fuki ritual. Now, by drawing this conceptual link to it, Dr. Heartless is able to borrow some of that system. Right. So, basically, just being on the same ley line isn't enough to be able to summon a servant. You also need to activate the, the thaumaturgical system that the um, three families created for the first Holy Grail War. Uh, and in order to activate that, you need someone who has been designated as master. So in order to activate that system, Heartless needed to lure a master onto the train, and he was able to both do that and acquire a catalyst at the same time by stealing waivers and giving him the invitation to come get it, get it back. Yes. However, because this is all still just like a weird approximation and not actually following the rules for servant summoning, he doesn't get a real servant, he gets Faker. Not an actual heroic spirit, but the shadow of his Kindar. Yes. Which they also explain in Case Files. Right. It's basically his body double. Right. And the reason she doesn't have, like, an actual class is because it, it like, the, the class system is something that was created for the Fuyuki War. Well, sort of. The class system that was created for the Fuyuki War is imitating something that already existed with the Grand Servants. <sighs> That's right. Yeah, that is right. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how do they know what grand servants are? Um, that's good. That's a good question. Where do we get our grand servant information in Grand? Uh, um, I, the only thing I can think of is in maybe they talk about it in Babylon. I know Gilgamesh tells us some stuff about it. Yeah, but we, I definitely feel like we know earlier on that like Solomon is the baddie and he's Grandcaster. I think we do. I believe that is told to us pretty pretty early maybe that's just told to us by roman and roman knows because he's because yeah yeah (laughs) that could be it it could be yeah but yeah so so that's that's the deal there dr heartless gets faker because he has a fake holy grail ritual that he gets by like kind of macgyvering together waiver and a ley line so that waiver is connected to fuyuki also an, an interesting thing about Ryder, just a cool detail so she was Iskander's body double when he was young. About Faker, you mean? Um, you said Ryder. Yes, about yes. Faker. She was Iskander's body double when he was young before he turned into a meat yes. Um <laughs> And the outfit that sh- she wears the exact same outfit as like young three-star Ryder Alexander. That is something that I noticed, and I was like, oh. Because with her, it's like a weird like titty accent strap thing, and I was like, oh, that's kind of tasteless. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, hang on, this is literally just the exact same as Alexander's design. Right, it's yeah, pretty cool. It's nice. So let's talk about Dr. Heartless now. 
I really don't know that much about Dr. Hardless other than what Case Files has told us. I know you know a little more than I do. I know a little bit more. So Dr. Hartless was the previous head of the Faculty of Modern Magecraft. His heart was stolen by fairies, hence the name. Yes, which Luvia mentions that she had heard about earlier in Case Files when she and GCO are digging around for dirt. He is the one responsible for the murders that Carbo Frampton committed accidentally using his mystic eyes and all, but that he was contracted to do so by Marysbury Animosphere. <laughs> everyone's favorite horrible I forgot dad. about that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So here's the funny thing. Dr. Heartless, in his investigation of the Fuyuki Holy Grail... Okay, so let, let's take a step back, actually. <laughs> so Marysbury Animosphere wants to win the Holy Grail War in order to set up Caldea. Correct. So he hires Dr. Heartless to investigate it. In the Grand Order timeline, he then goes on to fight in the Holy Grail War and win. In this timeline, however, Dr. Heartless discovers that the Grail has been corrupted by Angamanyu. Somehow. <laughs> he goes back and he tells Marisbury this, and Marisbury's like, okay, well then, that doesn't work. No, no Caldea doesn't get to exist in this timeline. Marisbury gives up on his dream of doing that. Instead focuses all of his time and energy on being an awful father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Dr. Heartless has had his interest peaked by this ritual. And that gets him to start plotting his own way of acquiring a servant, which is what the events of the Rail Zeppelin case then follow. Also, I guess this is probably spoilers for future case file stuff, so uh, plug your ears real quick, but I just found this on his wiki, and I think you'll appreciate sure. it. Sure, maybe. It is believed that he is the adopted sibling of Hishiri Adashino. No, no, no. He says, they say that at the end of case files. But... Oh. But, secretly, she is his half-sister through their father. Okay, the birds of a feather, <laughs> assholes of a feather, <laughs> flock together? Yep, pretty much. I see. No wonder she's so awful. He had his heart stolen by fairies, which, here we go, here it is. Uh, so he doesn't have a heart inside of his chest. Much like However, our favorite Kotomine. Yes. He does have a fissure that connects to a different space, akin to an imaginary number space. <sighs> By using the incantation, turn around my heart, which he does a couple times after he's revealed at the end, he can perform instantaneous spatial movement with the side effect of a pain similar to having his heart torn apart. Oh, oh, oh. So that's how he, in the, the final conflict, he like summons the forest divine ash again he opens up like a portal through which it's able to come and surround the train. Yeah, this is also a very fate thing where doing something causes you excruciating pain that no one ever reveals that they're feeling. <laughs> yeah. Incidentally, he also has his own pair of mystic eyes, originally with the ability to find things, which, again... So stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Later turned into the mystic eyes of usurpation that can usurp at will the vision of any eyes, regardless of if it's from a human or a divine spirit. Whoa. What is that? That's what pretty cool. That? I think just it like... just means he can see through other people's eyes. Oh, that's interesting. I, that's not how I was reading that at all. Well, how are you reading it? It was like, usurping vision sounds like you can like replace what other people are seeing with what you want them to see. Oh. Uh, maybe? I just, I don't know. 
I get that's also a valid reading, I suppose. I don't know which one. Yeah. Either way, it's it's cool and busted. So. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he has like pseudo teleportation. I see. It's not real teleportation because that's magic and yeah. not allowed. I'm really but happy that over busted. time they've just allowed people to teleport in fate and just be like, it's not real teleportation. Don't get don't get your hoofs up. Because it's like, <laughs> the only thing that's forbidden by the laws of true magic is instantaneous, like, you know, zero second, point A to point B. So if there's like point one milliseconds, I think you're good. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's like basically the same thing we do with the Shadow Border in Grand Order. Um, zero It's using leave? imaginary number space. Oh, that's yeah. true. If it's using imaginary and number it, space. It's using imaginary number space to transport things like between Sure, places. right. That makes sense. Which is how he just like yeets the Child of Ash through the big portal. Word. Cool. So that's him. He's uh he's weird, but I think pretty cool. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty into this guy. Yeah, he's a neat character. I definitely like the big reveal in case finals I felt lost its impact because it wasn't someone who I already knew. I have seen a lot of people say the same thing. Or he's like, I know exactly who it is. This guy you've never heard of before and hasn't been in any other fate <laughs> installment. He's the main right. villain now. Which is fine, yeah, I mean... To, to which I would say, like, how many times does Waver have to say the whole point is the why exactly, done it? right, not the... Not the but, like, the the mystery in question is not, like, who killed... What's her name? Trisha, Trisha Fellows. Fellows. It's why was Trisha, kel- Trisha Fellows yeah, exactly. killed. But yeah, I, I, I do understand the, the sentiment of, like, the reveal being meaningless. Yeah, it's a little bit... It's just the way they present it as, like, oh, this matters a lot. Except I'm like, oh, yeah. Here's here's our antagonist. It's it's this guy we didn't expect, so we didn't know he existed. Right, but that's fine. And there is one more thing to to mention, these guys, which is just a what is the forest divine ash? Forest divine ash. I like the forest divine ash. It's very fun. It's pretty cool. It's something that I heard about a long time ago, poking around in the wiki, reading into some stuff about Tsukihime, finding out about talk where Shiki ends up in the OG Forest Divine Ash, which is not the forest that the Mysticalized Collection train goes through. The whole deal with Ainash, because I don't think they actually explain it in the anime. They're just like, this is a forest, it's related to the apostles. Do they? Uh, I'm pretty sure that that's all they say. Long ago, there was a big dead apostle in Tsukime timeline, a dead apostle ancestor who was killed by arcade and i guess i'm not really sure what that means for how the forest of Ash was started in the fate timeline but well arcade still exists does arcade still exist in I don't, I just, the fate probably timeline? i don't remember okay i know the dead apostle ancestors don't exist but she's a true ancestor so right. and I, well true ancestors don't exist either right but you is and you is a being infinitely close to a true ancestor but isn't one because yeah, she's she's basically a true ancestor in all right, but is but but lore so so can't. Einash gets killed. His blood drains into this forest. It makes the forest effectively into like a dead apostle forest, like a phantasmal species is I think the technical term that it becomes. And over time, the fruit from like the original forest of Einash, they once they like ripen the seeds within those fruit then just sprout up elsewhere across the earth 
uh, as like smaller yep. vampiric forests that are called the Children of Inash. So the original forest of Inash appears every fifty years and just like devours a town and then disappears again. Oh, I forgot that um, it was like a like a like a wandering sea kind of deal. It uh it says that it's so powerful and impossible to exterminate that like after a few incarnations, whenever it pops up again, the church will like send a couple people towards it at, out of obligation, but no one who actually matters because they know it can't be destroyed. Although they do, Shiki does manage to to kill it in talk. Because Mr. Guys of Death Perception. <laughs> because Mr. Guys of Death Perception are, are broken. But yeah, it has the, the forest that, or the, the fruit at the center of it that drips blood onto the ground, and then the blood sprouts up into children of Inish. Yeah. Somehow, it, by going into the ground, it just goes somewhere else on the planet, and it just happens. Yeah. Um, children of Inash, unlike the actual forest, just, like, appear once and then disappear. But yes. it is the the remnant of the corpse of an extremely powerful yes. fossil. And there you have it. That's everything you need to know about yeah. Lord Elmley, the second case files, Rail Zeppelin, Grace Note. <laughs> Or Grace and Everybody Else Have I don't remember which order it goes in. Get whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we did it. I think we did. Your voice um, must be tired. You've 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 dumped a lot of this exposition. <laughs> my voice is a little tired, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so that's it. That's all of the like big lore things from the series that we thought deserved more explanation than they got in yeah. the show. If you if we missed anything that people listening to this are confused about, we are going to have Great a segue. Google form attached to <laughs> a, a Google form attached to this episode and probably all future episodes. Yeah, I think it I think that I was thinking it could maybe be in like the bio of our Twitter and SoundCloud. Just because yeah, our it could be our pin tweet, but I think the pin tweet, because it has more characters than the bio, should probably be where we keep our um Google and uh Apple links. Yeah, that sounds like a, a plan. But anyway, a Google form where you can like ask for stuff for us to explain, uh, or that you want to hear us talk about, whether like how how big or or small it is. If you're just like, hey, like what the fuck is a true ancestor that you talked about? Then we can talk about true ancestors and could probably make a whole episode about that. Or if it's a a smaller thing, we could do some sort of like short form content or just get a bunch of short small things at yeah. once for an episode you know whatever. yeah i think 10 our historically our episode structure has been we just address a bunch of things in a longer period of time but ben and i have been toying with the idea of of releasing smaller shorter episodes like you know anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes that just cover like a singular topic wouldn't have like our, our one usual character. customary random page at the end that we could just use to address the questions that you the listeners want to have answered yeah because I imagine there are probably a lot of them. Just if you're a, a fate-adjacent person anyway, and you're kind of a world-building person, you, you probably have asked some question about how this awful system works. Right. And we are here to answer those questions. It's true. If nothing else, we are we are Type Moon scholars. <laughs> so this has gone kind of long, so let's, uh, let's skip a random page for today and just wrap it up here. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at The Magic Circuit. You can follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash the-magic-circuit. You can follow me on Twitter at sleepy underscore Mimi. And Ben continues to be lost in imaginary number space social media lists. 
forever <laughs> cursed to travel between places and frozen in time. I feel like, if anything, uh, social media is imaginary number space. Oh, that's probably true. So you're... Are you... Where does the forest of Inash you're go? In the, you're in the moon spell. Uh, I think it just, like, disappears and reappears. Yep. I don't think it goes yeah, but anywhere. Where, but, like, it, just, it like, has to manifest exist as a years. thing for it to come back. I th- It's, like... I think it just manifests. Like, it doesn't go somewhere. Right, right, right. I'm not saying it, like, it teleports physically to a place. But I'm saying, like... Where where does the energy come from? Where does I mean I don't I, I feel like we're we're in that bit of the the D and D rules players thing. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> where, where they're like, we'll tell you what the ruling is on this thing. It's X. No, it's no, not. No, it's Y. No, we've been over this. Yeah. See, even we get our our <laughs> our uh, our facts a little twisted here and there. But hold on, real quick. Oh my god. Let's just see if we can find an answer to this really fast. The forest of Ionesh began to manifest itself every 50 years since that time, taking blood with even the church being unable to stop it. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, this is kind of a funny thing. The church did not know about Ionesh's death, so it was thought that he had simply changed dramatically. <laughs> they believed it was a product of his reality marble, lasting an unnaturally long time until he was satiated. Form of a tree. <laughs> Form of many tree. <laughs> uh, I love Typhoon. Uh, yeah, me too. It's like the only real fictional magic system I'm invested in, and the only one that I know about like extensively. So, I have put all my eggs in this basket, and I'm very glad to continue to do so. Oh. Oh, interesting. So the forest might just like stay where it is, but stop being like an evil forest, because it says while it is inactive, the tree branches are sufficient to wound creatures even while still. Oh. And they are able to assault prey with the intent to kill once it becomes active. Oh. Huh. So it just goes away, but you can't, like, you know, even if you were to go in and, like, burn down the forest when it's not active, it, it would still have enough of a, a presence yeah. to stop you. Yeah. And it says it is constantly sprouting entirely new areas of forest as well. I see. Well, there you have it. All right, cool. Um, But, yeah, that's all for this week. See you again in... Uh, Two weeks, hopefully. Um, I'll be yeah. moving, actually, in the next coming week, so I'm, I'm not sure how that will affect our release schedule, but uh, stay tuned. We'll put something on Twitter about it. Yeah, sure. Cool. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.